And we're going to be in uh, Luke chapter 17 and 18. We're going to be taking a look at a couple different texts uh, that I, th- I think are going to have some common themes, uh, and we'll see how that goes. And, and this is, uh, well, I don't know. It's not the hardest things that Jesus ever says, but it's always challenging. And in, in response to what Jesus says today, his own apostles, his own disciples are like, we don't have enough faith for this. Like, how do you expect us to live this out? How on earth can we ever do this? We need more faith, Jesus. This is going to be a hard thing for us. And so, so this is, uh, is going to be awesome. This is going to be exciting, and, and it's going to cause us, I think, like, like what Joe was saying, to celebrate and rejoice in the, the freedom and forgiveness that Jesus has already given us. And so, so let's, with that mindset, with that tone, Let's go to Luke chapter 17, verse 3, and this is Jesus talking. Uh, This is what he says, pay attention to yourselves, all right? Pay attention to yourselves. If your brother sins, rebuke him, and if he repents, forgive him, and if he sins against you seven times in the day and turns to you seven times saying, I repent, you must forgive him. The apostles, in verse 5, said to the Lord, increase our faith, right? Like, we're having a hard time believing this. We're having a hard time trying to put this into practice in our own lives. Increase our faith. And the Lord said, perhaps not the response to that prayer that we would expect, like, oh, sure, here you go. Here's some more faith. He basically says, use the faith that you've got. He says, if you had faith like a grain of mustard seed, You could say to this mulberry tree, be uprooted and planted in the sea, and it would obey you, right? And so Jesus, his response is, use the faith that you've got. Put it into practice. Don't don't use it as an excuse saying, like, I don't have enough faith for this, so I I get to dodge this one, right? Jesus, I don't have to apply this to my life. I can just kind of, well, no, it's not my fault. I didn't have enough faith. But he's like, no, you have some faith and put it to work, right? All you've got to do is decide to apply this, and and we'll see God do great things through, yes, even the small faith that we have. And so here's what Jesus said, right? Uh, Back to verses 3 and 4. Pay attention to yourselves. If your brother sins, rebuke him, and if he repents, forgive him. And so the first thing I want to point out in this passage, and it's supported by the rest of the scriptures, is this is for family, all right? This is about a brother or a sister. This is about someone that you have relationship with, someone who you are invested in, someone who you care about their future, someone who you're not trying to seek your own opportunity to make yourself look great and boast in the fact that their life is screwed up in some way in that moment. All right, this isn't about you. This is about them and loving them, about caring for them, about loving your brother or sister when they're in a place of stumbling or when they have strayed or when they have a moment of unbelief, when they are struggling through something, struggling to believe, perhaps, what Jesus would say. And Jesus says, listen, you're family. You're family. And you are supposed to care for your family. This isn't the same prescription that we would have for how we interact with those who aren't yet followers of Jesus. This isn't the same approach that we would take. We would take a completely different approach. But for those who are 
claiming to, to be followers of Jesus, hopefully they would listen to or have respect for the, the words of Christ, the words of truth and life, and realize, all right, something's off in my life and, and I need help. And in that moment, God has sent someone your way who loves you to pray with you, to encourage you, uh, to, to, to speak the truth into your life that when there's areas that any of us fall prey to believing a lie, when it, when it comes about where we're like, we're like, I don't know if that's really true or I've, I haven't been reminding myself of the truth of God's word and I've, I've fallen susceptible into believing like the rest of the world in maybe one particular area, that here comes someone, of a family member who says, hey, like remember the truth about this. Right? Remember reality. Remember what Jesus has done for us. Remember, like, and, and it's not coming from a perspective of, I have my life together and you don't. It's that we both have screwed up miserably and we serve a God who is forgiving and merciful towards sinners like us. Right? That's the, that's the perspective in heart. And I realize you might be like, I don't read that there, Brian. And that's okay. I'm going to try to show that to you in a moment. And this is the same Jesus saying this that says many other things. But I want to have us think about, remember the heart of Jesus. He is one who came on mission to seek and save the lost, right? He's the one who tells the story about the prodigal son who had uh, wished death upon his father, took his part of the inheritance, fled and, and squandered all of it in frivolous living, and then eventually comes to his own senses like, I need my dad. Like, I need to be back in my dad's house. And that sometimes in those moments, Jesus says he might invite you, he might call you to be a part of that person's restoration. That he might call you to, to be alongside them, maybe go visit them in that pig pen and say, hey, like, Jesus has forgiven both, like, he has better for us. He has something that he is inviting us to where we can walk in freedom from slavery to sin. And I'm not saying this in judgment, I'm saying this in love that Jesus is inviting us to something more. And is there any way I can pray with you or help you that I could come alongside you and assist you? In, in the Old Testament, God had actually had this expectation for, for shepherds that they would seek after the sheep that go stray, right? That God had this expectation for shepherds. And he wasn't just talking about actual, like, farming and man management of a herd. He was talking about those who were spiritually mature, should go after and seek out those who would stray from the faith. And he actually condemned them when they failed to do it properly. Like, he's like, listen, I'm expecting you to do this. This is for the, the health and the sake and my love for those sheep, and you're not caring for them in the way I, I called you to, right? You're instead using your resources to meet your own needs and ignoring the needs of those that I love. Right? Think about Jesus who talks about the good shepherd who leaves the 99 to go find that one stray sheep. We celebrate when we think about the fact that I was that sheep. Right? Jesus came after me. Jesus pursued me. And what's weird and interesting and difficult for us to process through is he calls some of us to, to do the same kind of seeking. That when we have a family member who strays, that he wants us to be mindful of them, to be loving them, praying for them, seeking opportunity to bring about reconciliation in their lives, right? That, that we celebrate it in one regard when we're the stray sheep, but then we're like, well, I don't want someone 
coming after me and saying I'm doing the wrong thing, right? Like we're, that's where we're like, I don't, I don't know if Brian, I don't even, I don't want to do that. Like, I don't know if I'd want to be in a church that acts that way. Like, I don't know if that's the kind of family that I'm looking for, where there, there's going to be people that have been deputized to hunt me down and Spanish inquisition me anytime I mess up, right? Like, that's not what I'm looking for. And I want to suggest that's not what Jesus is describing, all right, Jesus is talking about a family of people who are broken and screwed up, who need mercy and forgiveness, and then just remind one another, hey, remember what he's done for us. Remember what he's done for me. Look at my life, my sin, my failures, and he invites me to freedom out of that. How can I pray for you? How can I serve you is what Jesus invites us to. One of the things that's interesting is that any of us has the capacity to stray, the capacity to stumble, the capacity to sin, even against those who we're supposed to love. All right, that part of this isn't like Jesus saying, like, can you believe that person who sinned against you? Like, he's like, no, when a brother sins. As if, like, this is normal expectation in a church family. All right, that we are screwed up, and at times when we fail, we hurt the people closest to us. Right? That when a brother sins, is kind of like, it's going to happen, and it could happen to any of us, and we need to offer the same mercy and grace and forgiveness that Jesus made available to us when we failed. And so this is very different, this response that this person has, if, if they respond with repentance, rather than refusing to hear of this hope that we would offer, right? Uh, that it's possible in those moments, and we've all been there, that we don't want to be reminded of the things we're screwing up in, right? And like our initial response would be like, no, 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 I think you're judging me. Like, this isn't what I want. Like, no, 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 no. Like, there's nothing wrong that I'm doing here. I can do what I want. And it's like, that's our initial kind of hackles go up sort of thing. But Jesus says that the right response for us is that in that moment, like we take a moment like, all right, even though I'm offended that this person would even approach me and bring this up in my life, I need to ponder for a minute, what if they're right? What if they are being a truer friend to me now than the friends that I had Friday, Friday night, right? What if they are being truer to me right now and loving me more than the people who would encourage me in seeking after this thing that I want to cling to right now, right? I need to sit and ponder and say, Lord, is it possible that I've, I've, I'm blind in some area of my life and they're pointing this out and they're not doing it or, or maybe they did do it ineffectively and, and you know, where their flesh was in the way in the way they presented it or maybe they, maybe they are a little bit uh, offensive in the way they brought it up. But is there still nonetheless something true that you want to bring about freedom in me because of what they said? All right, and so it's, it's different than what Jesus says in Matthew 18, that there are times when this might happen and someone would refuse to listen, that they might refuse to listen instead of respond with repentance. All right, one of the things that I think is, is interesting to consider here is that Jesus talks about the idea that someone might repent seven times in a day and we should still offer them forgiveness. Now, that's different than someone saying, I'm doing nothing wrong, you have nothing to say to me, right? Like, get off my back, uh, right? Someone who repents seven times in a day means they're still screwing up seven times that day. But every time that a loving brother or sister goes to them and says, like, hey, this isn't right what you're doing, 
Like, let's bring this before the Lord. How can I help? Right? That they're actually saying, you're right. I'm screwing up. I'm wrong. I need help. Like, help remind me to fight this fight. Help remind me to, to, to be at war with the flesh that's inside of me that is contrary to my spirit. Right? And, and that they might still screw up six more times that day. But that heart attitude is different than the one who refuses to listen. Right? They're still stumbling, they're still failing, but they're at least acknowledging that God's word is true. They're at least saying like, all right, I'm, I'm still not right in this moment, and I don't know if I'll still be right by the end of the day, but I need help, all right, is what it's willing to admit. And so it's in response that the disciples say, increase our faith. This is hard, Jesus. Increase our faith. So consider this, right? This idea of Jesus saying, right, go to your brother, correct them, and invite them to repentance. This is an invitation to the forgiveness and freedom that Jesus offers is what he's describing. And it's consistent with what the authors of the Bible afterwards also say. Check out James chapter 5, verse 19, up on the screen. He says this, my, my brothers, this is actually how he ends his letter, my brothers, if anyone among you wanders from the truth, all right, so first point, among the family of God, it could happen to any of us, all right? We're, like, we all need one another, all right? It could happen to any of us. My brothers, if any, uh, anyone among you wanders from the truth and someone brings him back, let's see, is James going to be like, what a horrible thing to do. You don't have any right to judge that person. What are you doing? Like, no, no, no. He's actually saying, let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save a soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. All right? And so this idea of, of bringing someone back into freedom and forgiveness is a good thing to be celebrated, to, to be mindful of. And notice that the person who does that doesn't then go out and blast their sins to everybody else. Right? But upon that repentance, it's like, no, let's, we don't need to tell everybody about this. Right? Like, we, we can, if, you know, we don't need to address this to the whole crowd, right? You were able to, to turn and experience that freedom in that moment, and it's not needing everyone to hear about it. Or in Hebrews chapter 3, the author of Hebrews says, Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you, right? Any of you, an evil and unbelieving heart, leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. For we have come to share in Christ, and if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. And so once again, like the authors of Scripture are clear, like brothers and sisters, be on guard, take care, right? Look after yourselves, be aware that any of us could fall prey to an evil and unbelieving heart, right? Those are, those are strong words, uh, right? Or that any of us could be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin, right? And it's not that I have the sin of wanting to deceive, although some people struggle with that. It's that sin itself in any of us manifests itself in a way that we are falling prey to its deception, that we begin to believe it's a good idea, that it's making my life better if I keep this thing that Jesus would say is bad for me, is unhealthy for me, is harmful to me and 
to the people around me. And the solution that the author of Hebrews says is exhort one another, all right? Every day, as long as it's still called today, remind and encourage each other to be on guard against this sort of deceitfulness of sin, all right? That, that all of us fall prey to this. So, so what would those kinds of reminders look like? What would that kind of encouragement look like? It would be like, hey, have you noticed if you've been slipping into believing any lies? How are you equipping yourself with the truth? How are you defending yourself with your shield of faith? How are you on guard against these sorts of things? Are, where in your life, because it happens to all of us, are we, are we letting our faith slip, right? Where in our lives are we starting to believe lies about the sins that we would like to, to cling to, all right? Or, or how is your fight against sin going? Not to presume that we all just walk like somehow victoriously and never stumble or never are tempted, right? But it's like, no, this is as long as you and I have human bodies, they are going to be at war with our spirit. And so it's like, how's it going in your life? Are you still fighting against that? Have, you, have we even, and I need you to ask me, right? Have, have we been mindful of the fact that we're susceptible to this? Has my heart in any way become hard to the, to the deception of sin? Or encouraging someone, keep on your battle. Jesus is worthy of this fight. The Holy Spirit is working with us, partnering with us, bringing to completion the work that He began in us. And the Father is on our side, not letting any of us be tempted beyond what we can stand. Right, Being mindful of, of the full Godhead, the full Trinity, being on our side bringing about our sanctification, all right, where, yes, we've been forgiven, we've been justified, but now he's bringing it out in practice in this life, right? So that's the sort of thing that, that James and the author of Hebrews describe and remind us. That's the sort of thing that Jesus reminds us of, that when a brother sins, right, correct them, rebuke them, right, bring them back to the freedom that God's invited them to. I want us to take a look at a particular narrative story from the Old Testament uh, in the life of King David. And, and when you are reading the Bible, if you, if you do so ever in like chronological order or order of the books, uh, you see early on this hope, this promise of salvation that, right, pretty quickly humans screwed up. That's like page two of the Bible. Uh, right? But then God offers this hope that there will one day come this person, this Messiah, this Savior, who's going to crush the head of the serpent, that deceptive sin that would try to consume us, and he'll, his heel will be bruised. And we have this prophecy showing up over and over, and like we're like hopeful, and, and if you're reading, and if maybe somehow you were reading the Bible and hadn't yet heard of Jesus, you'd be like, I wonder who it's going to be. Maybe it's the next person. Maybe it's Adam and Eve's son, Seth. Maybe it's going to be Noah. Maybe it's going to be Abraham, right? And, and then you're like, these guys keep screwing up pretty bad. Like, what's going on here? Uh, my hope is being shattered in humanity. Like, what is wrong with these people? And then you're like, well, I'd do the same thing. But, but when we finally get to the character King David, you see like he, he's this man with his heart after God. He's singing psalms unto the Lord. His faith, even as a child, was that which his hope was in the Lord in every regard, that even in the, like, the battle between him and Goliath, he defeats this giant because he trusts in God and he liberates his people from guaranteed slavery, 
right? That's what was at cost in that fight. And we're like, this guy's doing it. Like he's making a break for the finish line. This is awesome, right? And you're like getting excited as the reader for King David. And then you start to realize there's fractures in his character, right? This, this facade of this king begins to crack. And you're like, oh no, like this isn't good. It's, he's starting to do the same stuff that all the others did, right? Like he's starting to to have concubines as a king, and, and then it comes to this pivotal chapter where when the rest of the men go to war, King David chooses to stay home. And while he's on his palace roof, there's this woman who, for a purification ritual, is bathing on the roof. So she's not there necessarily trying to bait the king, although sometimes that's how it's presented. And he sees this woman, and her husband is at the war that he's in charge of, and he demands to those in his court to go bring that woman to her, and, and he sleeps with this woman. And she ends up getting pregnant, and you're like, no, David, what are you doing? Right? Like, we're, you know, if, if moments like this, if sin was coordinating itself in such a way, uh, like this in sometimes a, a person's life, they might think like, man, my life is coming together. How fortunate I am. Look at this amazing situation that's working out for my good. You might think like as an individual, uh, not privy to the deception of sin, like man, I'm going to have an awesome weekend. Like, and no, that's not at all what's going to happen. Anyone who loves a person looking on as they see sin begin to position that person in checkmate is grieved, is broken hearted. And as the reader, you're like, no, David, what are you doing? What are you doing, David? And then we find out, like, she gets pregnant and he coordinates. He abuses his authority to manipulate this man's murder. And you might think, like, the flesh side of us might be like, oh, oh, phew, nothing wrong is ever going to happen, right? He's going to get away with it. And how wonderful is that? But, like, we're grieved at heart, right? We don't actually rejoice and celebrate when David appears to be getting away with this. Right? Where our hearts are broken. And I want us to like, take a moment and look at our own lives from the outside and be like, how do we feel about us? If we were looking at our story, if our lives were written out in the Scripture, preserved for thousands of years, like, would we be excited when moments like this were presenting themselves? Or would we be grieved once we begin to think about ourselves in the same way? And so King David ends up failing miserably, and as a king, we lose hope in him. Second Samuel 11, verse 26. When the wife of Uriah, her name is Bathsheba, Uriah is the man that David killed, heard that her husband would, was dead, she lamented over her husband. And when the morning was over, David sent and brought her to his house, and she became his wife and bore him a son. And he got away with it. It looked like on all fronts, he got away with it except God knows. God knows. At the end of that verse, it says, but the thing that David had done displeased the Lord. Right? The thing that David had done displeased the Lord. In the beginning of the next chapter, and the Bible didn't originally have chapters and verses, it was a continuous story. It says, the thing that David had done displeased the Lord, and the Lord sent Nathan to David. And Nathan was a prophet of God in the land at that time. And I want to suggest to you, Nathan is like David's best friend in this moment. God sends Nathan to David. 
And let's keep reading in 2 Samuel 12. He came to him and said to him, there were two men in a certain city, one rich and the other poor. And he's just telling David a story. Right? This is kind of interesting. So David's not thinking about his own life. He's not reflecting on his own sin. He's not thinking about any of this. He's thinking this story. All right. Okay, thanks, Nathan. Tell me a story. The rich man had very many flocks and herds. Right? And so maybe David be, could think about like, oh, I'm a pretty rich person, whatever. And, and the poor man had nothing but one little ewe lamb, which he had, had bought. And he brought it up, and it grew up with him and with his children. It used to eat of his morsel and drink from his cup and lie in his arms, and it was like a daughter to him, right? And so this, like, if Nathan had, like, Pixar cinematics, imagine, like, that story being played out in cartoon form of, like, oh, the guy and his little sheep, like, this is adorable, like, oh, this is going to be, this is the best story ever. I'm, you know, feeling all the feels. And then what happens, it says, verse 4, now there came a traveler to the rich man, and the rich man was unwilling to take one of his own flock or herd to prepare for the guest who had come to him. But he took the poor man's lamb and prepared it for the man who had come to him. And in verse 5, it says, Then David's anger was greatly kindled against the man. Right? Previously, we read that what David had done displeased the Lord. And when David himself was removed from the situation, he is equally displeased with the same kind of behavior. David himself is angered. And he says to Nathan, as the Lord lives, the man who has done this deserves to die. And, so, uh, and he shall restore a, the lamb fourfold because he did this thing and because he had no pity. And so this is the, as far as how the Bible speaks to the human heart. Like, this is how far removed we are from our own sin. This is how deceived we can be, all of us, all right, about our own sin. Is like, we're like, well, yeah, but my motives are, or yeah, I was just, you know, trying to worry about my own self. You know, there's nothing against these other people. It was just, that's just how I was. And, but yet, when we realize, when, when we look at that same behavior from the outside, we recognize that it's obviously wrong that it's obviously wrong. And then Nathan responds in verse 7. He says, David, you are the man. David, you are the man in this story. You are the one who took the ewe lamb. Like, do you realize this, David? And so now David is embarrassed, right? His sin is put on display. He thought he got away with it. And Nathan is here and he says, you're the same man from the story. Thus says the Lord God of Israel, I anointed you king over Israel and delivered you out of the hand of Saul. That was the former king who had repeatedly tried to kill King David, right? Uh, I gave you your master's house and your master's wives into your arms and gave you the house of Israel and of Judah. Now, that does not mean we never hear the story about David marrying those wives, just so you're aware. And if this were too little... I would add to you as much more. Why have you despised the word of the Lord to do what is evil in his sight? You have struck down Uriah the Hittite with the sword and has, have taken his wife and have killed him with the sword of the Ammonites. Now, therefore, the sword shall never depart from your house because you have despised me. This is God's word talking, right? David's actions were 
that in which it was despising the Lord's words and despising the Lord himself. And he says, and have taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your wife. Later on in verse 13, David says to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. He acknowledges the wrong that he did. And Nathan said to David, the Lord has also put away your sin. You shall not die. Nevertheless, because by this deed you have utterly scorned the Lord, the child who is born to you shall die. And then Nathan went to his house. And so David does recognize, or David recognizes what Nathan says is true. He turns and repents. And yes, there's forgiveness, but yes, there's still great cost to his sin. All right, that's not to say that this child is condemned, uh, because in fact, the rest of the story does seem to point to the fact that the child is received into God's kingdom. But the point to take away, not that this is a general principle, that any time someone that we love dies is God punishing us, that's by no means what the Scripture is saying. But the point to take away is that our sin always costs us so much more than we would initially think, than we would initially consider. So let's take a look at Luke 18, back to Jesus, telling another parable, and he's going to tell a story in a similar way to Nathan, a story about two men. So Luke, Luke chapter 18, and, and this is going to, so this has, right, we just saw the weight of addressing the sin in someone's life, the costliness of sin, bringing them back to repentance. And David, he ends up going on and writing more psalms about how wonderful it is to experience the forgiveness of God, right? And so, so God restores and redeems David in many ways. But let's read what, what Jesus has to say to try to figure out balance of what does this look like, Jesus, all right? Luke 18, 9, Jesus also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. All right, so we actually get a little glimpse from Luke as to the intent behind uh, Jesus telling this parable. All right, that there were those in the crowd that looked at themselves as righteous and good and not needing any forgiveness. And they looked down on other people who didn't live uh, as at least superficially righteous as they were. And Jesus, just like Nathan to David, Jesus now goes to those people. And this is dangerous because religious people have the tendency to fall into this category, all right? To fall into the category of like, well, look how good my life is. Look how great of a person I am. God must be thrilled that I get to be a part of his family, right? Like how fortunate for God. I'm just this, this gift to God because of how great I am, right? And, and so this is the sort of thing that Jesus is correcting. Verse 10, two men went up to the temple to pray. One a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. So tax collectors were known sinners. They would have been perceived by their culture as having betrayed their community to be a part of the Roman Empire and exploiting them for gain, right? And so a Pharisee and a tax collector. Verse 11, the Pharisee standing by himself prayed thus, God, I thank you that I'm not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector, right? So he's literally like praying like, God, there's that, that sinner right over there. Thanks that I'm not like him, is what this man is praying. He says, I fast twice a week and I give tithes of all that I get. And so this man's attitude, instead of having this thankful heart towards God, he was thankful for himself. 
right? He's like, God, you must be so thankful to have me. Like, how fortunate you are, right? He wasn't thanking God. He was suggesting that God should be grateful for him, right? This man was looking at himself as being self-righteous, self-justified, good in his own account, and needing no repentance. Verse 13, the other character, it says, but the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat on his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. And now Jesus adds some commentary to this story. He says, I tell you, this man, the tax collector, went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. And so this first man thought he had no need of repentance. He thought, I've done nothing wrong, like there's nothing for me to apologize for, right? He was ignoring his own sin, whether it was sin that he acted upon or whether it was sin at the level of the heart, right? He's like, no, I'm perfectly fine. There's nothing wrong I've ever done. There's nothing I ever need to turn away from. He was, as the Bible said, one who trusted in himself for righteousness, all right? And so this is something that Jesus is trying to warn us against. Right? This is what Jesus means when he t- reminds us to pay attention to yourselves that if your brother sins, rebuke him, and if he repents, forgive him. Right? We might have a particular category when we think of Jesus saying that, but what I want us to consider is that when we go to a brother inviting them to repent, they might look like that Pharisee. They might look like someone who is like, no, I don't have anything to repent of. Right? I'm good on my own. Right? And so we've got to be careful that we don't treat others with contempt, that we don't look at ourselves as righteous and look at others as condemned and think like, you know, look how great I am and God's never going to forgive them, right? That when we go to a brother who has sinned, it's not with the mentality of that Pharisee in that story. That's what Jesus is correcting against. But we experience justification right? Complete righteousness in the sight of God, not because of what we've done, but because of what Jesus has done for us, right? It has nothing to do with what we've done, right? It's achieved its experience by acknowledging our own sin, our own failures, our own need for forgiveness, right? The second man was humble enough to acknowledge his sin and his need for mercy, right? The second man was willing to say, God, I need your forgiveness. And he actually would have agreed with David who said that this sin was worthy of death, that the man who would do that sort of thing deserves to die. This man acknowledging his own sin, he's like, God, I realize there's right and just consequences for the wrong that I've done, but I'm asking you for mercy. And God offers that mercy to that man. Right? This is the sort of thing that the, the gospel hinges upon. This is the sort of thing that we need to be mindful of, that our justification is not from within. It's from Jesus alone. Let's skip, guys, to uh, Galatians chapter 2, verse 16. Paul writes, he says, Yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. And so we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order 
to be justified by faith in Christ, believing in Jesus, trusting in Jesus and the work that he's completed. All right? We are not justified by keeping the law, by doing everything right. That, that's not how it works. It says, because by works of the law, no one will be justified. No human on the earth exists that, that like God's going to be like, you know what? There is no need for you to experience forgiveness from Jesus. Like, you did everything right, you're good. No, all of us have failed. All of us need Jesus. Verse 20, in that same passage, Paul says, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Right? The good news here is that all of us are sinners, but Jesus loved us when we were his enemies. Jesus gave his life for us in order to pay the penalty, the, the, the right consequence for the sin that we deserved in order to make mercy and grace available. And in verse 21, Paul says, I do not nullify or make void the grace of God. For if righteousness were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. All right, that if, if somehow we could be made right on our own, then Jesus' death was in vain. Then what Jesus came to do was useless. Then the Father's answer to Jesus' prayer in the Garden of Gethsemane was void and empty. Right? When Jesus says, like, if there's any other way, let this cup pass from me, speaking about the judgment that he was about to receive through his death on the cross, and the Father still chose to send him to the cross. Because this was the only means through which we could be saved. The good news for us is that a prerequisite to experience justification is being a sinner. And all of us meet that requirement. Right? All of us can come to Jesus, the one who loved us and gave himself for us. Let's take a look at Romans chapter 10, verse 9. I'm skipping a few here. Uh, so Romans 10, 9. It says, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. For the scriptures say, everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. Right? For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek, for the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing, bestowing his riches on all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. And so the good news is that we can experience forgiveness, freedom, justification on the basis of calling upon God for his mercy not because we deserved it, but because of what he's already done through confessing that Jesus is in fact Lord, that he is right and we are not the Lord of our lives, right? Confessing that we are in fact sinners, that we're broken, that we are deserving of judgment, but seeking him for his mercy. And everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. And so the, the heart attitude when Jesus says, if your brother sins, rebuke him. And if he repents, forgive him. The, the thing that we're trying to do is we're inviting someone to that same kind of justification, to that same kind of forgiveness, to just be like, remind them of the truth of God's word, of like, this is, this is harmful to you. This is breaking you. This is hurting those around you. And God invites you to freedom. And if we call upon the name 
of the Lord, we can experience that forgiveness and that freedom. We can live a life that's worthy of the one who loved us and gave himself for us. We can be made righteous because of what Jesus has done, right? The heart attitude behind that whole thing isn't seeking to condemn someone, but to love them and invite them to live a life worthy of Jesus in the freedom that he offers. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you, Lord, that none of us come before you standing uh, right in our own strength, that all of us are broken, all of us have failed, all of us have stumbled, but your grace and mercy are available, Lord. I pray, Lord, that you would uh, seek and save the lost, that as each of us have the tendency to stray, as each of us have the tendency to fall prey to deceitfulness of sin, I pray, God, that you would keep us, that you would protect us, that you would care for your flock, Lord God. I pray, Lord, that none of us would place our hope in our own righteousness. I pray that we'd be willing to acknowledge our own sin and call upon you in repentance. But I thank you, Lord, that we no longer, once we've experienced that forgiveness, that we no longer have to keep our heads bowed and be unwilling to even look upon you. I thank you that because of what you've done, because you've made us clean, we will not call what you have made clean common. That we can boldly go before your throne of grace when, when we are in times of need. That you have made us children, you've made us sons and daughters in your family. You've adopted us into your household. And so, Lord, I pray that you would help us to live a life in which we rest completely on you and your mercy and your forgiveness, but also live a life in which we aim to try to please you in everything that we do. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.